Hello, my name is Rod Cutforth and this is the end of all things. I am still out here in... Do you know what? I think I forgot to mention where I was in that first podcast in part one of my Rapid Fire Indie Press Extravaganza. You know what? I've even got it. I've got that name wrong. It's not Indie Press. Indie Publishing Extravaganza. You get it, right? Uh, I'm in front of Burley Fields MMU campus. It is about, oh, I don't know, three o'clock in the afternoon, and it's, I'm actually quite hot. Anyway, I'm still out here, and I'm still hungover. I, as I mentioned in the first podcast, this, this is a weird thing about doing three at once, is I kind of have to say things in each one that are relevant without repeating myself for the people who listen to all three. But for the people that just only listen to one, I've got to do all the information again. So I'm in a bit of a pickle, and I'm only realizing that now as I'm doing it. This, as I mentioned, this is part two of three of my rapid-fire indie publisher extravaganza. See, I've already, <laughs> could you tell? I've already run out of energy doing that. Uh, three mini-podcasts released in as many days with indie publishers from the north. And in case you didn't listen to part one, where I interviewed Nathan from Dead Inc., in fact, should I really summarize it for you? Why don't you just go and listen to it instead? Fine, I will summarize. Finished my novel, so the podcast is changing somewhat. From advice on improving your writing to how to get published, because I have my book, my book is done. It's my podcast, and I want it to get published now, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people who listen that want the same things. So I ask publishers that. that. I've got a couple agents lined up to come on and talk about it also uh, loads of writers because they're the most fun to talk to let's be honest you shouldn't say that when you're in an intro to a podcast about with a publisher in fact this publisher raw page from common press who i talked to today is is probably more interesting than most publishers because uh comma press is currently only publishing books from muslim ban countries and Raw is very political, uh, so we have a bit of fun with that. And I think we uh, there's some, if I remember correctly, some quality Donald Trump bashing in this, which is my favorite thing. And I, I'll try not to do it too much because, you know, life sucks at the moment. I don't really want it to. I, life doesn't suck. Life's good, but the political world is dreadful, and I don't really want to talk too much about it. But you'll get some of that in this podcast. So tough luck, buddy. You'll still get all the, the interviews with the writers, as always. And I, in addition, I'm not just going to pepper them with questions about getting published, because that's really annoying. Uh, so most of the time, I'm gonna, they're going to be the same old shit, just talking whatever nonsense they want to talk about. But yeah, the podcast is now also going to be documenting my struggle to get my shitty novel published once I get it back from the uni with their notes. I haven't completely decided what I'm going to share with you and what I'm not going to share with you. I toyed with the idea of reading you my many future rejection letters. But to be honest, rejection letters are all pretty dull and samey. And once you get the first two or three, you get the idea, really. If you are a publisher listening to this and you want to get a mention on the podcast, make your rejection letter to me slightly interesting. And uh, maybe I'll read it on the podcast <laughs> or better yet publish the fucker 
lol. I didn't summarize part one of the indie publisher extravaganza, did I? At all. I just completely went off a tangent again. The first interview was with Nathan from Dead Inc., and in it, we talked at length about a person getting something published, as well as some funny industry stories. Uh, oh yeah, no we didn't, I had to edit those out. If you see me in the pub, ask me. I will happily trade industry stories for free alcohol. In fact, if you buy me a single malt scotch, I'll even tell you how much money Kit Duvall got from My Name is Leon. No, I won't. I totally won't. But I, I might thank you for the drink. I am uh, digressing again. This, as I mentioned, is part two. It's with Rob Page from Common Press. And um, as I mentioned earlier, this is the, I'd say this is the big boy. He's got, the, he's got a paid staff, which is quite a novelty. Actual people that get money. I think Nathan has a couple as well, but there's very few independent publishers that have like a full paid staff. And um, as far as Manchester's concerned, I think Common Press is the only one. I'm sure I'm going to get emails uh, from people telling me other ones who do as well, but I don't care. Uh, by contrast, part three will be with Tom Kuehl. Do you know, I don't even know if that's how I pronounce his name. I'm pretty sure it is. I just kept calling him Tom. Uh, anyway, from Dodo Inc., which is a new and very small, or as Tom says, boutique publisher. That's quite a nice way to put it. Um, they publish a lot of books that basically no large publisher will touch. And I think that's a theme that goes through all three of these, really. It's publishing good work that don't fit anywhere else. I th if I'm getting anything from it, that's a bit of a spoiler alert, I guess. But um, that, if there's anything I've learned from these three, it's that. So, and it's a, quite an exciting thing, actually, the independent publishing. I just read something at the, at the moment that Manchester is home to the most independently published novelists in the country. I think it might have been The Guardian that said that. So yeah, it's a thing that's, that's happening. Comma Press, even though it is bigger and more established, take on even more niche writers than most. They take short collections of short stories, and as if that's not limiting enough, they are now only taking short stories from writers in Muslim-banned countries. Do you know, I don't think that's entirely true. I think they're just translating from Muslim-banned countries. You know what? I'm just going to let Ra just ignore everything I've said and listen to Ra talk about it. He does a much better and much funnier explanation of what they do and about their struggle, really. I'd, I'd heard many things about Rob before I'd interviewed him, but uh, the thing I, I think I heard most from people is that he, he can be a bit spiky at times. You'd think, how can someone with a, like a hippie name like Raw be spiky? But hey, that's what I'd heard. Uh, so yeah, I was a, of the three, I, I was the most nervous talking to Raw. Uh, I had asked him on before, and he'd given me Jim Hinks, which is fine. Jim was great. Um, but Ra is the guy that runs Common Press, and I had a couple properly smart-ass questions to ask him as well, starting with what kind of fucked-up name is Ra, but uh, to which I kind of expected uh, a harsh reply. Also, if you've been running an indie press for as long as Ra has, you're bound to be a bit spiky, aren't you? Uh, I'm spiky as shit, and I ain't published nothing. So anyway, to my surprise, the man was a teddy bear. That's... He <laughs> No, Teddy Bear is not the right description. He's a lovely guy, uh, open and warm, great stories, and uh, with his politics very much in the right place. He's also got some fantastic stories, and most of those ones, I think, stayed in the podcast, so 
Aren't you a lucky duck? If memory serves, I didn't actually ask him too many questions about how one gets published at Kama, because the stories about the books that they do produce, largely, as I mentioned, translations from war-torn or impoverished nations, were more interesting. So we talked about that, really. Uh, trigger warning, by the way, in this. Donald Trump and George W. Bush both get mentions in this one. <laughs> we do uh, say mean things about them, though. So there you go. Here's Raw now. Listen. What, uh, what have you been up to today? Uh, I have been talking to various people. I've been talking to a journalist in Jordan and uh, then talking to a Guardian journalist who keeps misquoting me, so I was very reserved uh, yeah. about the ethics. That was about the ethics of going to book fairs in slightly dodgy places. Right. And, and we're trying to create a new phrase. You know the phrase greenwashing? Nope. where Where dodgy corporations suddenly spend a bit of money or spend a bit of time like uh, doing something nice and green yeah. to try and greenwash their bad reputation. Is that kind of like uh, buying carbon, carbon uh, trading? No, no, it's just little tokenistic things, really. Right. Uh, so it's well, carbon like, trading's tokenistic. Yeah, yeah, be. maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's just like sponsoring a tree or something. And uh, but there's a, there's and then that, that means, okay, we sponsored a tree, so now we can yeah, 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 you know, yeah, take yeah. advantage and of... We can use lots of trees in our adverts and pretend to be yeah. very green. Uh, there's a there's a similar trend, uh, what we're calling bookwashing, okay. where dodgy governments and dodgy corporations sponsor uh, literary f- uh, book fairs mm-hmm. or literary festivals. Um, so there's a very dodgy uh, mining company, like diamond mining company called Vedanta, uh, which is appalling, um, spons- okay. sponsors the Jaipur Festival uh, recently, and lots of questionable Gulf states have spent a lot of money on book fairs and the ethics of whether or not we should go really to. yeah yeah like what a Ab- strange Abu Dhabi place to put money yeah no 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 because Abu Dhabi sort of leads the way of the Emirate states but Sharjah's got one mm-hmm. and I think I don't even know what that is Dubai it's, a, it's another Emirates oh right okay Emirates state within the United Emirates oh Emirates. right 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 fine uh, and they're all defined by the prince crown prince sheikhs of right. those areas um, but why book fairs well, well, it's about showing the in, the intellectual caliber and uh, supporting reading and uh, you know education is a mm-hmm. huge thing in the Middle East. Whether or not you're in a uh, in an oppressive country like Saudi Arabia or a mm-hmm. liberal com- country like Egypt, it's them to it, it's it's kind of know. a vehicle for them to say we're not like Saudi well, Arabia. It, well, it, education full stop is just big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially science education it's very very big across uh, but the, the fairs are about encouraging all types of reading locally mm-hmm. and also showing to the world yeah kind of book washing showing to the world that they're, they're not some kind of backward right. state based on slavery <laughs> which you think they are it's a, that's quite, I think that's, that is an obstacle that only comma press could run into no 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 there's, there's a big there's a big industry in but I mean, book because fairs. with the like the translation stuff that you guys yeah, do, yeah, 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 our writers would never go anywhere near fairs like that. Mm. Uh, but it's tricky; it's not completely um, cut and dry because a lot of uh, it's for a lot of the Gulf countries. It's the only way you can get books mm-hmm. is they literally go to the fairs. It's not like trade fairs where mm-hmm. it's just business to businesses. It's uh, book. It's 
tu uh, teachers, library, stockists and booksellers actually go with massive great trolleys and just stock up with hundreds of books and fill vans with them and then go back to you know it's like a drug van or yeah 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 or go back to Riyadh or places in Saudi uh, or Jordan so these book fairs are really important so you can't just say they're all bad uh, yeah it's but there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of blood money Jesus about petrodollars and all that thing, so. which book fair is the worst one for that oh god don't quote me <laughs> <laughs> no, no 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 I want names no 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 I don't, I don't know I don't know which, which is the most outrageous well, Saudi Arabia, I don't think it has a book fair, but that would be. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, Sharjah compared to Dubai is quite laid back. Um, Dubai is a joke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as is Abu Dhabi, mm -hmm. and Sharjah is not that much better. Right. Um, you know, they're built on slavery, they're built on, uh, yeah, complete lack of human rights, etc., etc., mm -hmm. and slave, slave labor, essentially. Well, I guess that, that leads it very nicely into the big news headline that Comma Press is generating. The fact that you are now only translating books from Muslim ban countries. Yep. Is that still in effect, even though the, yep. the, the ban sort of isn't? Well, the ban will, will come back. I think it will it'll go back to the appeals court, the Supreme Court, um, and uh, Trump will try again. Uh, but I think it's a symbolic gesture by him and uh, it's a symbolic gesture by us uh, in return um, so yeah it's it's still uh, it's a very good way of uh, focusing um, us and our kind of editorial mission for the next year on countries that we've not translated from or published from before and countries that um, you know will be producing writers just as any any country does um, and that isn't being listened to as much as it should be so commas worked with Iraq a lot and it's worked with other Middle Eastern countries in particular Palestine um, and across across the region but we've never published anybody from uh, Iran, Yemen or Somalia um, so it's a really good uh, kind of catalyst or uh, motivation spur to make us look at those countries Is there, and this is such a, an ignorant question but I'm going to ask it anyway is there enough work in those countries like is like Somalia, for instance. Yeah, there are lots of uh, really good Somalian writers. There's um, Nadifa Mohammed, who is uh, a great writer. Uh, she's based in the UK. Um, uh, there is, there isn't the infrastructure, uh, and so some of these, some of the, these countries are harder to find the best writers in. Um, and there's, there's a lot of uh, work being translated from Syria uh, uh, over the last few years, obviously because there's interest in that story, but. Uh, that proves that there doesn't need to be the infrastructure for there to be the writers. Um, there are loads of writers coming out of Syria, uh, and the reason why we're seeing them is because people have made a concerted effort to find them, um, at publishers and translators, I mean, um, and to give them a voice. But yeah, there's absolutely writers in uh, from Mogadishu and Senai and uh, yeah, Yemen and Somalia generally. Mm. Are there going to be are there countries that you kind of regularly? get work from who aren't on the list that might suffer as a result? Um, people have asked me this question and uh, it sort of segues into the question about positive discrimination. Um, I, um, you, there, there may be an element of that, it's only a one year commitment. Uh, mm -hmm. We have done a lot of work with 
Palestinian writers and we'll try and get as much of that done this year before next year as possible um, but uh, you could say that others are, f- are going to miss out yeah mm-hmm. uh, but I think the defense of that is we make discriminatory decisions we discriminate in every decision we make uh, we make a, a hundred discriminations a million discriminations and um, it's better to try and own some of them and to have a have thought out why you're discriminating positively or negatively uh, mm-hmm. than not to. Definitely. Um, it's just me trying to, to uh, mask my really lefty <laughs> attention to just, and just uh, and pretend Embrace like, like some journalist and go, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think it's a really great thing, actually. Um, I think it's, I don't know. I was going to ask you about Trump, but I'm not sure if I want to even. <laughs> Maybe not. No, go for it. I right. Think, what, what, do you, it, what do you want to ask? <laughs> Tell me. Do you want what a star do, sign? What do we do? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, yeah, I told you. Uh, we fight. Mm. Um, I think the travel ban has been a really symbolic uh, first act by him. Or I'm not going to say him, actually. I'm going to say it. The administration, the White House, the new presidency. I think part of the problem with it, um, the White House, the new the new presidency, is uh, the coverage is hysterical, whether it's positive or negative, but it feeds into the obsession with the personality. And it's a very, very clever trick. It's a very old trick. Uh, and there's nothing new about it. But the more we talk about what the presidency has done today or what the, pre- what the administration has tweeted at 2 o'clock in the morning... Uh, and the more we personalise it, I think uh, the more we're feeding into exactly what uh, that presidency requires or that strategy requires, it fuels it, which is an obsession with the character. The more It was the same with George Bush, uh, George W. Bush. Um, every time somebody took the mickey out of George W. Bush about his, um, his funny phrases and his... Uh, strategery. Strategery and... Uh, all of those classic examples. Every time uh, the left or the liberal left or middle classes or the uh, Saturday Night Live or whoever uh, took the mickey out of him, it fed into the kind of Midwest blue-collar love of him as somebody who stands in opposition to that Mm -hmm. class of people. Um, And um, it makes him more of a, quotes underdog, more of a, quote, outsider, uh, more of a, in quotes, Maverick, etc., mm-hmm. etc. He was sticking it to them. They didn't care. They loved the fact that uh, middle classes or uh, liberal left or whatever hated him or thought he he was a clownish. Um, they embraced that. So um, first thing we we have to do is stop uh, paying uh, an hysterical amount of attention uh, to that presidency. Um, and I think you f- you fight every policy and you fight every act. Um, and it's a war of attrition to the demonstrations on the weekend of the travel ban were incredibly moving. I've never seen, you know, in my lifetime I haven't seen images from the States of demonstrations that were quite as moving as that. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I was almost as, you know, I was, as, I was as inspired by that as I was slightly terrified by mm-hmm. the actual ban. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, those kind of battles, it's not going to be one single riot in London, you know, like it was mm-hmm. with poll tax, you know, yeah. one riot brought down Maggie Thatcher. It won't be like that. It's a much bigger fight. Um, but, you know, just fight. Yeah. The good thing, if there is any sort of good thing to come of this, is that 
at least he's not covert about anything. I think he's very obvious yeah. where he stands, mm -hmm. and um, that is something that uh, you know the left can kind of latch onto. At least we did. At least we're not guessing about anything. It's in yeah. black and white. Yeah. He says stuff every day. You're just like, oh right, that that's actually how he feels. It's not like George W. Bush where it was Cheney really in the background pulling the strings, and it was a little bit more difficult to prove anything. But we still sometimes uh, hope for the best, and we still kind of occasionally think, oh, he's not really going to do that. And every time we do that, we have to check ourselves and we have to uh, st stop ourselves from hoping that he isn't going to turn into a fascist. Mm -hmm. What a fascist president of the United States might look like is open to question. But Donald yeah. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but what modern fascism looks like is, is you know, unknown mm -hmm. um, in the, on that scale. But we have to stop kind of telling ourselves that it's not going to be fascism, because mm -hmm. uh, it is. Yeah, I don't think many on the, well, I say left, there is no left in the United States, but on the center left, yeah. they, I think many people are actually, it, this is the first time I've seen them not really being afraid of saying that, this whole alt-right business. But anyway, I'm going to do a subject change because I can't stand talking <laughs> about it anymore. Um, Can I ask you a question? Go on. Do you, uh, we, are you from the States. No, You're how Canadian. dare you, sir. Sorry, yes. sorry, sorry. Okay. My guy was very good today, oh, he, actually. He was amazing. I've got, yeah. I've got a bit of a man crush on him. Yeah, every, I think uh, everybody on the planet does. Yeah. He's a bit, there, there is, there's not as much to him as he portrays. Right. Uh, it's, there's, he's still got some very big black marks against him that he needs fixing. Right. Uh, in particular, how uh, Native Canadians have been treated. Um, there's lots of stuff that have come out about how Poorly, they were treated in school, um, and I mean that's that is the understatement of the century. And he refuses to admit it, really, which is really odd when you consider how, especially with his father and how left they were. Mm. Um, so the, he's got a few things. I, I mean, he's uh, the thing is though, because er, all the other leaders outside of Angela Merkel really are shit at the moment. That he looks amazing, yeah, yeah. and he knows it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's still he, he's still got to prove himself, I think. For me, but I mean, today was brilliant. That whole handshake thing, I was like, "Fucking get in there!" I didn't Justin. see it. What's happened? But, okay, Sorry. do you know this handshake thing that Donald Trump does? Mm. Basically, when he shakes hands, it's like a power move in yeah, his yeah. mind. He's where he shakes the guy's hand and he yanks them yeah. towards him yeah. and then pats their hand like he did it to Theresa May, yeah. uh, and he did it to all the world leaders. Um, Justin basically shook his hand and grabbed him by the shoulder and just looked him in the face and I was like. You know, it's just a, it's such a fucking childish thing, but that's what we're we've been reduced to. Anyhow, I might edit that out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I probably you should, will. Uh, we're going to talk about First Nation stuff. Uh, you, mm -hmm. If do you know Bernadette Lynch? Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, from the Manchester Museum. I know of her. Yeah, you should interview her if you're interested in that oh, really? side project. Yeah. She was uh, she was appointed director of the. Uh, like the National Museum of Toronto or something. Mm -hmm. Is she Canadian? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and right. she, uh, first thing she did was she made, um, she, she gave all of the uh, First Nation artifacts to the First Nation people. So wow. we'll, now, we'll now rent them from you, if that's okay. But you can yeah. take them away. Brilliant. She, yeah, she's amazing. Have they got any Egyptian stuff? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I Big question. This is the question I wanted to ask you most. Uh, because a big thing that comes up in this podcast all the time, uh, the main th point of the podcast, 
is to is for people who are writers and who work in this industry uh, to get actual money <laughs> for things. <laughs> yeah. How the hell does Comma Press make money when it you know you translate books from um, foreign countries and now you're actually limiting yourself that way? Yeah. How do you survive in this current climate? I mean, it's it's it's. You know, properly impressive to be honest, but I don't uh, know how you do it. A couple, there's a couple of key tricks. Okay. Uh, one of them is being in Manchester. Mm-hmm. So the entire publishing industry, like 98% of it, in terms of staff or something like that, is based in the south east, uh, in particular in London. So, so being in Manchester, we're able to do things at a relatively low cost. Okay. Uh, so it's really, it's, and we can we can make more, we can take more risks, um, and we can make more impulsive decisions, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is we're supported by the Arts Council, uh, so we get a sizable proportion of our kind of turnover uh, from, from the Arts Council. We have to do a lot of uh, outreach things and engagement activities, and we also run creative writing courses, and we have to um, deliver a certain amount of access and opportunities and uh, other things which uh, a normal publisher perhaps wouldn't. Um, and that takes up a lot of our time, but um, it gives us um, it, it gives us a platform and a, and a safety net, if you like. Mm-hmm. To um, is it not a revenue stream as well, in a way? Like, do you not make money from that? Y- sort yes, of thing? yeah, yeah we, we make a little bit of money from the courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a national creative writing graduate fair, which breaks mm-hmm. even. It doesn't make any money, um, and and it actually probably loses money if you include the amount of time we spend on it. Definitely, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, yeah, but we also have been pretty cunning in uh, our rights sales. So we sell a lot of rights uh, to other foreign publishers. Uh, we've sold Hassan Blossom into uh, 24 different countries, including Penguin in the States. Um, and uh, when we make those sales, we basically act as an agent for the writers because the writers work in short fiction. So everybody says to them, you know, there's no, there's no hope. In, uh, in making a living and agents won't represent them etc etc so we're effectively their agent and we take the 20% right. uh, when we sell those so uh, rights is kind of like a, a thing which people don't uh, or, or write it's the boring well. bit it's not boring at all actually it's, mm. it's really really exciting I went to the world premiere of 45 years at the Berlin Film Festival last That's year pretty good. yeah uh, we, we, we got an Oscar nominated uh, feature film out of a uh, short story, so it's so it can be really exciting. Uh, which Sorry, which one was that? That was uh, so it's the Charlotte Rampling Tom Courtney film, Forty Five Years. Oh right, which was based on a short story by David Constantine, which uh, was called the original story is called In Another Country, and that was one of your guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh right. So and that was uh, in two thousand nine. We had a silly little uh, two day festival at the Corner House, as mm-hmm. was uh, where we. Uh, paired filmmakers and writers and we got lots of filmmakers, you know, young filmmakers to make poem films or short story adaptations uh, like 20 minute things and one of those uh, was a guy called Andrew Hay uh, who worked with a producer called Tristan uh, Goliath and he made a short story, a, a short film based on a Sarah Tierney short story called Five Miles Out and it was fantastic and I said to him, look, there's this one story in the David Constantine collection that you need to look at you need to read and he took the option out round about then which was 2009 and seven years later hmm. it was a feature film uh, 
with these, you know, these yeah. world-class actors. So, um, I wonder if that's that is the ultimate end game for a short story, because you certainly won't make any money publishing shorts. Because uh, you, you guys do short story, you guys do short story and yeah, yeah, anthologies as well, don't you? We anthologies and, and collections are pretty much all we do. Oh right, okay. Uh, so we we concentrate on the short stories. So. So it's like a Venn diagram. So of not stuff only, okay, so right. <laughs> so not only are you choosing countries, uh, a very small, <laughs> limited number of countries to yeah, do yeah. your translation with, you've actually chosen yep. <laughs> a, yep. a bit of the market yep. that there's zero money in. Yeah, short so stories. It's like a Venn diagram of things that are impossible to sell, <laughs> starting with short fiction. There's a big circle of yeah. short stories don't sell. Then there's a the big story uh, circle of. Um, Translation doesn't sell, yeah. and then you've got another one which is so the translation obscure <laughs> countries like the Yemen or Syria. Yeah. But at least those are novels, though, aren't they? No, they're short stories. They're short stories as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god! Yeah. Wow. But the short story is good for emerging writers, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, you know writers like Hassan Blassin, who was our our biggest writer ever by a lot by quite a margin in terms of revenue, amount of places that we've sold into the, mm-hmm. the territories that we've sold into, etc. Uh, he's a short story writer, and the traditional kind of major publishing houses would say no to anything he ever sent. Yeah. So unless there's a small little publishing house that's prepared to take a risk on something like that, he mm-hmm. would never have emerged. He would never have emerged. So. So um, how has he emerged? Like how did how did you guys get him into the public? So uh, sphere, we f- uh, we. Uh, commissioned an anthology of uh, short stories from 10 different cities in the Middle East uh, which was edited by uh, a writer, poet, journalist and translator a uh, polymath called uh, Jamana Haddad who was based in Beirut mm-hmm. uh, she found 8 or 9 uh, writers who were fairly established from uh, the cities that I was looking at but she didn't have anybody for Baghdad and Baghdad was in the height of the civil war at the time mm-hmm. um, and the occupation. This was 2007, um, and but she had edited a uh, section of a newspaper, like an art section of a Beirut newspaper, uh, in which she occasionally published the odd poem. So she had been uh, sent poems by this refugee, crazy refugee guy, Hassan mm-hmm. <laughs> Basim, who was in Finland by this point, um, and she liked them. I don't think she'd ever published them in the newspaper, but she loved them and. She gave the Baghdad Commission as the wild card to to Hassan, and he wrote a story specially. He'd never really written about Baghdad, okay. Uh, and that story was just complete knockout. And from that point, I just said, "Write me a full book." And it was turned around within about within less than a year. A full collection of short stories. Yeah. So wow. that was uh, 2009. That was um, at the Madman Freedom Square. Mm. Didn't get reviewed. We knew we were, we were onto something, but it didn't really get reviewed. It, it got long-listed for a prize, and an American publisher noticed it, asked me to send it to him, loved it, but was waiting for the second collection. So he took like the best of the first, and what he saw was the, you know seven half of the first collection and half the second collection, mm-hmm. and combined them for the American edition. Right. Um, and then it was a snowball. That and he won the Independent Film Fiction Prize in 2014. Yeah. So it was a snowball from there. Uh, but. It was a long time, and he wasn't published in Arabic uh, initially at all. Um, okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's exciting. Mm. Yeah, and I got an email from Brad Pitt, uh, <laughs> a co-producer, uh, that was very interested in making a film out of 
his work and thing, yeah. you never know when where these things go to yeah um, and you just have to sort of allow them to happen mm-hmm. uh, and th- to answer your question about film being an output it is one kind of long term um, legacy of short stories yep. and there's a couple of feature films in production at the moment uh, based on other short stories that we published mm-hmm. so there's a short story by uh, Matthew Holness who's uh, a horror writer and a comedy writer and an actor um, it's called Possum and uh, that's coming out later this year uh, starring Sean Harris mm-hmm. and there's another story by Frank Cotter Boyce uh, called Triple Word School which is being uh, adapted into a feature film starring Bill Nighy mm. so wow, all of those yeah. could be exciting there's another one what's the big one that, that movie that just came out that was based on a short story I can't not Rival it was something like of a, that a Rival was a Rival a it was Rival, rival. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was a short story yeah, yeah. Uh, there's many there's many it's like uh, Brokeback Mountain's short story mm. many of uh, uh, Stephen King's classic all came from kind of long short stories or short novellas mm-hmm. a collection called Altered, uh, five seasons mm-hmm. I think it was four so, no five you're right you're right yeah uh, yeah so it was Stand By Me mm-hmm. Shawshank Redemption etc yeah. etc et so no. it's like classic yeah. films and classic plots uh, and there is a there is a uh, an element of short stories being easily adapted and projected into feature films there's sometimes with novels there's too much mm-hmm. it's too internal and um, there's too much to strip away mm-hmm. Um, and probably too difficult to adapt not as easy to adapt because you don't have the the space to make your own story out of yeah, it yeah, exactly. like a short story yeah. hmm. what in your mind makes for a good short story <laughs> um, I guess it's um, oh god <laughs> big question yeah 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 very big question so it's to do with uh, the way in which the story um, misdirects you to a certain extent and okay. then uh, then allows you to uh, reread it uh, kind of sometimes completely retrospectively so a really great story will whether it's an imagistic story whether it's a plot driven story or a, a character based story mm-hmm. it will misdirect you in terms of um, your understanding of what's going on with the characters with mm-hmm. the plot or with a particular image and then at the end it will leave you kind of a little bit lost and having to re-evaluate and uh, re- yeah. re-read everything from scratch. Um, Does it need a twist then? By that it's logic? Not a, no, it's not a twist. Cause, well, a twist suggests uh, kind of a plot-based mm-hmm. uh, thing. So, it does, so it's not a twist. If, if you look at imagistic stories, like um, if you look at uh, Catherine Mansfield's uh, The Fly or Bliss. Bliss is a great story about a woman preparing for dinner party and being very excited about this blossom blossoming uh, pear tree mm-hmm. uh, on her balcony I think um, and this image kind of changes and mutates through the story and it starts off meaning one thing and it ends up kind of mocking her um, and likewise with the the fly you'll have um, this image which the reader just doesn't under- doesn't initially understand uh, and it's never uh, pinned down what it does Symbolized. It's not a symbol. It's it's a kind of a space in which. It's, so it's not a cipher for something else. It's mm-hmm. not an emblem which means definitely one thing. Um, yep. It's a it's it's a kind of a visual space in which the drama kind of gravi- towards which the drama gravitates. So, mm. um, and it changes and 
what it actually means or what it actually signifies moves as the story develops. So, um, so it, it doesn't, and, and likewise with character-based kind of epiphanies or turns, they're not twists, um, as in you suddenly have to turn your, uh, you know, you have to turn your perspective on a on a on a pivot and mm -hmm. suddenly uh, kind of say this person is definitely a different type of character. It's just something which kind of yeah. Um, changes the way that they might think about how changes the way they might I don't know it, it opens it up to another reading of that character okay. um, so so yeah there's lots of like the, the uh, famous one you know the the, uh, the famous Carver story Cathedral mm -hmm. you're led you're misdirected into thinking this the, the, the husband is uh, a very intolerant man who can't stand having this guy staying in his house this blind character um, and you're constantly pointing in that direction that uh, you know his intolerance and then there's a moment of uh, understanding or connection and at that point you have to suddenly as a reader say no I didn't know this character mm -hmm. and I think that's what great literature does and what sh great short stories do is they kind of uh, allow you to follow a series of assumptions and then they kind of abandon you uh, kind of a little bit lost if, um, hmm. and, and they ask you to find your own way out because you're, it's your assumptions mm -hmm. uh, that have led you into this kind of maze. Do you know, I'd argue that's the same thing for novels. Yeah. yeah. Any kind of fiction, that's the best way to do it, isn't it? Possibly. Uh, you can do it, uh, I think, with... You need with, a bit more of a wrap-up, I suppose, in a novel, but... Yeah, I think, I think with the, the, the short story, you can... You can have you can look at patterns of, of entire lives. So you can you can follow one pattern, and then suddenly you can see a glimpse of something very very different. And to to, to you know to cut to black straight after that realization mm -hmm. is something which the short story does very well. Mm. And it kind of it lives in that end game that's just before the curtain closes. Something very very surprising happens that makes you readdress everything. You can see um, why it, it lends itself to cinema. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's quite that's quite cinematic, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And weirdly, forty-five years the film. It took it, it took a couple of tricks which were not in the original story, uh, but it worked like a short story. Mm -hmm. And the last shot in that uh, film, uh, the Charlotte Rampant character pulls her hand down. Uh, they're sort of celebrating a party and, and spoiler a spoiler alert. <laughs> Go on. Sorry, yeah. That's all right, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, so spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she she kind of has a little moment of anger, which you would only notice if the, you know you're staring at her. And mm -hmm. It's a very very intimate moment, but it's kind of a catastrophic, sort of devastating, uh, emotional kind of moment, um, which it then cuts to back straight after. Um, you're kind of making me. Want to read short stories again? <laughs> Yay, yeah, yeah. Because I'll be honest, I, it's never really something that stuck with me. Short story. I don't know really? why. I, maybe I've just not read the right things. Right. Yeah, but uh, that's that sounds good. Maybe, maybe I should read something from Compress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what? Uh, so, what have you guys got uh, coming up that we should look out for then? So we've got uh, a really interesting anthology of um, stories about protest. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that's and, good. Uh, sto- yeah, it's very timely. Timely. <laughs> I've been, it's timely, but I've been working on it for three years. It's nice work. Huge you're project. just a, you're a, what's the word, visionary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You saw this, I you s- saw Trump coming. I saw it coming. I yeah. saw it all coming. Wow, this guy's uh, good. But it's, it actually doesn't have any recent um, protests in it. So it's stories where the authors work with a historian, or in the case of more recent protests, they've worked with uh, an eyewitness or an organizer, an mm-hmm. act- activist involved in these protests. Uh, and they cover from uh, the Peasants' Revolt, which is 1381, through to uh, the anti-Iraq War Jesus. Uh, demonstration, which is 2003. I didn't go any further than that for very specific reasons, but uh, yeah. the second, you know, the second half of the 20th century stories mm-hmm. are, are working with actual activists. The writers work with activists, so that's all people that were there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, really interesting because. Um, you know, if you send two people to an event, they'll and then ask them afterwards, they'll describe very different versions of those events. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you send one person who was at the <laughs> event and then a writer who wasn't, um, there's a lot of disagreement, That's there's a lot of tension um, between the two. So, uh, but it's been really interesting, and we, it covers everything from, um, you know, we got um, there was a lot of protests in the around the, the time of the interregnum and I don't uh, know 60, what that is. so it was the kind of uh, around the time of uh, Cromwell and okay. the, and oh, the Tudor shit <laughs> go on uh, but there's also so there's the diggers and the and the levelers mm-hmm. and Venice uprising but then there's some really interesting stuff from I'll uh, pretend I know what that stuff yeah, is yeah go on <laughs> and then there's uh, there's things like the National Blind March, which changed uh, British poli- government policy on the way blind people were treated, okay. and disability is dealt uh, is kind of so based in the UK. Are these protests all of them? Are, yeah. You were, yeah. Um, we kind of originally had a list of protests around the world, but it's uh, how became, could you? That's, <laughs> became, in, that's a bit of a <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, I know. It's so it's so Anglo or British centric. It's terrible. Well, you need but at least one, don't you? <laughs> you got to make some money somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but the, also, it's quite. It's quite important to, sh- to uh, remind ourselves that Brit- British pro- the British protest movement has a great history. There's uh, mm. a Peter Lou massacre in there. Peter Lou is is one that I uh, I'm not filled oh. because because it's there's there's a big Mike Lee film coming out uh, mm-hmm. next year and it's um, it's kind of well trodden territory. There's yeah. there's plenty of others. Um, so yeah, and there's uh, uh, Battle of Cable Street, mm-hmm. there's Battle of Orgreave. Minor Strike, Greenham Common, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Brixton riots, um, oh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, how does a person, uh, even say a new writer, uh, you know, well, let's say a new writer, get a short story in one of your anthologies? So we have uh, an anthology. We have a showcase uh, anthology of new writers, which we bring out every couple of years mm-hmm. uh, and the next one is going to be out later on this year um, we also have a, um, a general call out for uh, stories around certain themes uh, every six months so it's kind of keeping an eye on, on our website for mm-hmm. that um, we also uh, have short story writing courses and everybody gets to publish a story as an ebook as a result of those courses but also the best of those writers then get mentored or mm-hmm. will be mentored okay. um, by who? Uh, by the tutor for okay. a bit, bit further um, and then uh, we commission new writers all the time for our themed anthologies so we have like science and fiction and history and fiction 
anthologies like the protest book mm-hmm. um, and um, we kind of develop writers uh, slowly new writers slowly so they'll appear in two or three of those anthologies sure. before we do a full collection with them. okay so they just uh, uh, send it via your website basically and yeah and, and, and uh, keep an eye on the call outs the, the themed call outs that, mm-hmm. that we put up right does the Magu- MacGuffin still yeah MacGuffin yeah. absolutely yeah so um, people can publish mm-hmm. anything they like uh, as long as it's not uh, like offensive <laughs> yeah whatever. Um, hateful yeah. <laughs> um, but I yeah. would hope that someone who knows what the common press publishes <laughs> would know better than that but go yeah, on yeah 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 no so it's, it's, it's basically an open platform mm-hmm. um, and it allows people to sort of promote within their within reading groups and uh, use kind of Twitter like uh, technology to to push their work um, mm-hmm. and to tag their work and to yeah, yeah. great um, that's mostly what cool. I have to but I, I do have one last question go what the it. fuck is up with your name? <laughs> you know, I thought about this. I thought, yeah, 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 you've right. clearly got hippie parents. I must be. Yeah. But it's not your first name that's the weird bit. You're la- the guy that publishes something, yeah. his last name's Page. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's a nominative, um, what's it called? Uh, nominative determinism. Nominative determinism. Well, we're going to do a retake. Yeah. It's, yeah. Nominative, yeah it's called, what nom- was it called again? It's called nominative determinism. Um, I was at a funeral recently that was... Um, oh, way to leave us on a, yeah, yeah. a light note. Go <laughs> on. I was at a funeral recently where the vicar was called Bill Church. <laughs> um, and what's the famous example of nominative determinism? Um, <clears throat> the guy who invented the bra, his surname was Titsling. Yeah, exactly. And there's also the guy that... They say that the guy that invented Tits the McGee. toilet... Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, they invited... This one's not true, but it's it's fun to say anyway. Yeah. But the person that invented the toilet was surnamed Crapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, anyway. Klaus Crapper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so your parents were clearly hippie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you.